We have Dr. Jonathan Sanford in studio. It's the fourth Monday of the month, and that means it's our time to focus on the University of Dallas, uh, where I'm a graduate, got my uh, master's degree there, and it's just an awesome, awesome university. So, Dr. Sanford, welcome. How are you doing? Happy New Year. Happy New Year, <laughs> Dave. It's, it's great to be here, and um, it, it's great to be starting a new a new semester at the University of Dallas. Our students are eager and um, already at it for a week, and it really looks to be a, a wonderful semester. Mm-hmm. Are things starting to feel like they're kind of getting back to normal a little bit? Uh, is, yep. it, is, they, is there they, a sense they, of normalcy? They are. I mean, there, there was a little um, a little bit of, of COVID on campus, but not a whole lot, and yeah. and, and I'm not too worried about it anyway. Yeah. Um, so we're, we're more or less back to normal. Students are are um, about the business of of in-person classes and, and digging into the great texts of our tradition and and uh, uh, so we're 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 heading full steam ahead. Yeah, biggest freshman class in the history of the university. That's right. right that's right. Yes. Yeah, that is awesome. I have a, a very close uh, friend of my well, my my daughter's two doors down from us who started uh, at Baylor. Uh, <laughs> she actually started that this week, and so I know that's where your guest is from, uh, Dr. Francis Beckwith, <laughs> professor <laughs> yeah. of philosophy, and she had a great first week, by the way. She really enjoyed it. Uh, professor of philosophy and church state studies at Baylor University. So I uh, take it away, Dr. Sanford? Well, well, Dr. Beckwith, it's so great to have you on the show. How are you? I'm doing great. It's it's good to talk with you. Likewise, likewise. Thanks for taking the time. And I, w- I was just telling Dave, our host, that you're going to be on campus. We, we've we adjusted the date uh, a little bit. It's going to be March 3rd now, and you're going to be talking on answering the same God question with theological integrity, which is a, a part um, drawn from your, your latest book, Never Doubt Aquinas. Confessions of an Evangelical, I'm sorry, the Catholic Aquinas as Evangelical and Protestant. So I'm I'm um, sitting in the studio here with Dave, who who's got his own book on on Aquinas, and when he was at the University of Dallas oh. working on his master's degree, um, he he worked on St. Thomas Aquinas in particular. So we've we've got three three Thomists <laughs> who are uh, well, part of this conversation. Well, you know, I, I, a couple of years ago, uh, I was. I would spend a year at the University of Colorado, and I team taught a course with Robert Pasnow, who's a, who is a Aquinas scholar. Right. He invited me to team teach, and I, I told him, I said, you know, Bob, I'm just a Thomist. I'm not an Aquinas scholar. Mm-hmm. So there is, I, 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 I approach Aquinas as somebody who loves him, who has read a lot of him, but I, I kind of, I don't, I don't like to associate myself too much with, with. Uh, at least the rarefied scholarship that uh, I wish I had more time to delve into. So, so, but as Bob says to me, said to me in response, he goes, "No, you have skin in the game." Yeah, that's right. And yeah, so I, so as a Thomist, I mean, I I, I think because it's yeah, obviously it's, it's in many ways the philosophy of the church. Uh, I have skin in the game. <laughs> yes, yes, you, yes, you do indeed. And you know, similarly, I, I I wrote a dissertation on a different topic altogether and came to Aquinas a little a little later in life. And I, I like that distinction between an Aquinas scholar as opposed to a Thomist. And in a way, um, um, it 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 helps us to understand Aquinas as the universal doctor of the church, right? So in a, in a certain respect, although many people might not like to hear this, we should all be Thomists. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I, when I think of, like you, I, I, I did study Aquinas in grad school, but I had a kind of, um, I kind of a distorted view of Aquinas, mm-hmm. and one of the things I'm, I try to do in the book is to kind of 
explain how over the years, as I began to read Aquinas, I didn't realize how much of contemporary philosophy influenced the way that I read back into Aquinas ideas that he probably didn't hold. Yes. And so there, there's a sense that, you know, when you, you know, when you're reading Aquinas, uh, if you if you approach him with contemporary categories, at least in philosophy, uh, you, you're going to miss certain things, yeah. and that's something it took me quite a while to learn. Well, you know, um, before we we get into the book a little bit, because I I do want to ask you about um, some of the the misunderstandings about Aquinas that you treat. I I, um, I, I think that might be fruitful, um, particularly for uh, the wider audience that listen to this show, but. Um, would would you sure. mind sharing a little bit about your return to Rome? Um, the um, I, I think it was 2007, 2008, uh, somewhere in that period, and and you actually published a book about about uh, coming back to Rome, Confessions of an Evangelical yeah. Catholic, and I, I I suspect that 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 perspective plays a role in in the way that you come at Aquinas in your most recent book. Oh, very much so. I came back to the church 15 years ago. I had grown up Catholic, went to Catholic schools all my life during the during my elementary and high school, and then did my PhD at Fordham University, mm-hmm. uh, where I studied under some of the great Thomas of the 20th century. Although at the time I didn't know who they really were. One of whom was Father Norris Clark, wow. uh, Father Gerald McCool. Uh, and I look back, it was sort of remarkable that I had that opportunity. But I, I drifted away as a youngster, uh, was sort of drawn to evangelical Christianity. But as somebody who's interested in philosophy, I saw Aquinas as somebody that I could appropriate as an evangelical Christian. But what I didn't realize was how much of Aquinas' thought was so tightly tethered to the theological and ecclesiastical aspects of Catholic thought. So like a lot of evangelical philosophers who love Aquinas but remain evangelical, Mm -hmm. they kind of think you can sort of take one part of Aquinas and ignore the other part. And Mm -hmm. so it took me a while uh, to sort of figure this out. And by the time I had decided to return to the church in 2007, and my wife, who had never been Catholic, decided to convert, um, I think I was probably there for a while, (laughs) just in terms of the way I I understood the world and the way I looked at the relationship between faith and reason. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, I, it, it's it's funny. When I was young, so I, I went to a great books um, school for my um, high school and then studied great books as a, as a classics major um, and uh, as an undergraduate and read very little Aquinas throughout that. And I got a lot of of actually negative perspectives on Aquinas from a number of my my professors. And I think part of that might have been connected to um, the way in which Aquinas, at least within the, the Catholic world, had been regarded as a as a kind of, of catechetical source. And one did not often encounter his his living mind, so to speak. The the, the kind of engagement um, that you find in the disputed question format where he brings forward the, the most challenging objections to the position that he wants to advance and, and then not only advances his own position but takes great care in responding to those objections. And, and 
And I, I think many of my, my teachers just had not encountered Aquinas in his actual texts. They, they had been working uh, from some handbooks, and I know some of those handbooks were, were quite good. But, but for me, when I opened up Aquinas' actual text, I thought, here, here is a, a, uh, a philosopher and a theologian of, of great and subtle intellect who is unafraid to go where other people might be far more wary and um, I don't I don't know if you had any of those kinds of challenges in in your background, but I'm I'm interested in hearing about the way in which those within the Protestant um, uh, side of of the Christian equation approach Aquinas and, and what kind of of challenges they encounter when they when they think about him. Yeah, I think I think that your 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 account is is is, is I think accurate in terms of the way. Uh, what is called the manualist mm-hmm. tradition, you know, the, the sort of the kind of post-scholastic way of systematizing Aquinas for, as you said, catech- you know, catechism, right? And uh, kind of like a, you, you basically the Baltimore catechism is like, you know, Aquinas for dummies, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> kind of, you know, uh, that that sort of way. And I think that obviously uh, is not a bad thing, but you're right in terms of encountering the actual text of Aquinas. And in the evangelical world, um, the thing that that I think attracts a lot of evangelical academics and intellectuals to Aquinas is the fact that he does offer this very rich uh, account of reality that um, tries to explain the relationship between faith and reason in ways that certain aspects of Protestant traditions do not. Mm-hmm. But one of the one of the things that I discovered in one of the chapters in, in Never Doubt Thomas, in which I address this, is is on issues like the doctrine of justification, where uh, which is of course the doctrine over which the Reformation was law, launched, mm-hmm. and some of the great evangelical Thomists like Norman Geisler and John Gerster and R.C. Sproul, they read Aquinas as somehow not consistent or in continuity with the tradition that follows him, like the mm-hmm. Council of Trent. And so one of the points that I make in the book is that in what the Council of Trent says in, in response to the Protestant Reformation is right from Thomas. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, so I, I'm thinking, well, how did they miss that? And I think they miss it uh, for the same reason why when you're in love with somebody, you may miss their flaws. Yeah. That is, you know, they, they love him so much, they don't want him to be wrong on that. Mm-hmm. And also, Aquinas is not writing in a polemical way about that issue, because he's not responding to, uh, you know, thinkers that are in schism with the Catholic Church. He's just writing to, you know, seminarians, at mm-hmm. least in the Summa Theologica. Mm-hmm. And so... So I think that's one thing that I that I that I discovered was that uh, I don't think you you can always account for the misreading of Aquinas as just bad reading. I think it's just you discover a writer that seems to answer so many questions, and then he says something that may make you turn sideways, and so you kind of reinterpret him or interpret him in a way that's more generous to your view. Right, right. That makes sense, and you know it it, it bears. Pointing out the the obvious that that Aquinas is you know pre Reformation, pre pre the kind of schisms that that mark the um, um, the modern um, uh, fissures that that run through 
the church, um, particularly in, in the Latin West. And, and so he's, he's there for everyone and can, um, be a guide for, um, uh, evangelicals, Protestants, and Catholics and, and, um, you know, perhaps through concerted effort, uh, might be a, uh, a vehicle for, for calling others back to, to Rome, although that's, that's just not something that was on his mind in the same way that it would be for those engaged in apologetics today. That's right. So today you find I, I've, I've made friendships with many uh, Protestant um, theologians and philosophers who actually didn't know while I was an evangelical because of their love for Aquinas's way of, of, of doing theology, uh, one of whom uh, is named uh, Carl Truman, who's oh, at yeah. Uh, Grove City College. So you, you, your listeners may have heard of him. You may have heard of him. He writes often for first things, and right. he is a real devotee of Reformed scholasticism, which is uh, kind of a school of thought that arises after the departure of Calvin and Luther. And a lot of these thinkers, like John Owen and, and uh, Francis Turretin, wind up reading Aquinas and uh, appropriating much of his theology in order to shore up kind of the classical doctrine of God, which they thought may be lost with a kind of purely sola scriptura approach to scripture. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. really, it's really interesting some of the ways in which post-Reformation Protestant thought, at least in more conservative circles, has has used Aquinas, uh, I think, in ways that are really fruitful. You know, you you do a lot of work, uh, Frank, in moral and political philosophy, and and you know, I, I find, at least for my my own research, uh, Aquinas' treatment of the virtues of particular significance there. And I, I love the way in which he he's got a, a a natural account of the moral and intellectual virtues. And then as you move into the secunda secunde of the um, uh, the summa theologiae, right? It, it grows richer and richer. He's got the account of the um, uh, theological virtues, and then they r- invest the the moral and the intellectual virtues with grace and bring nature to perfection in a way that is unimaginable without the infusion of grace. And and is that dimension of Aquinas's work, you know, this basic idea that grace perfects nature, that brings it and brings it into a, um, a higher state of, of perfection. Is that is that a stumbling block for for those coming at Aquinas, say from the Reformed tradition or or uh, uh, Presbyterianism more more specifically, or or um, is that too an area of, of real richness in their encounter? Yeah, I, I think that, that there there are some Reformed thinkers that welcome that in the sense that they they obviously don't interpret it like. Uh, let's say the Catholic Catechism interprets the race, the, the, the role of grace mm-hmm. in, ju- in, in, in an infused virtue, but they do see obviously grace being important for our ability as human beings to engage in acts of charity and to transform us in the image of Christ. So, I mean, there is a very close, mm-hmm. it's very close the way in which they describe the way grace works. On the other hand, you find some reform thinkers, uh, and I see most of these folks that come out of philosophy rather than theology seeing natural law thinking as a kind of lingua franca, that is a, a kind of way of defending views in the public square 
without appealing to explicit theological notions. And I actually think that doing that uh, doesn't fully uh, express the role that the passions play yeah. in why we do bad things. I, I think so. So, you know, there's this, uh, in the book I, I mention, I, I refer to uh, uh, a group of critics of natural law as frustrated fellow travelers. Mm-hmm. And these are people that say, look, we give all our arguments in the public square and people don't change their minds. So natural law doesn't work. Yeah. And, and my what I think they, they, they exclude from their vision is the part of Aquinas where he actually explains why people actually, even with an, a kind of primitive awareness of fundamental moral principles, still act badly. Right. That's and right. it has to do with, you know, miseducation, uh, unmastered passions. And I, I even think some of, some of, uh, uh, even some of our Catholic friends kind of, you know, if you, I think they make a mistake by ignoring that aspect of Aquinas or not really addressing it, because I think it's, 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 it's an important question to answer. It's like, why is it, if this is the deliverance of reason, why do otherwise reasonable people don't immediately change their minds? Yeah. Well, I, I think it's because we're just not rational. We're just not merely rational animals. We are animals, right? I mean, we're, there's a, a rational part of us and there's an animal part of us. And that's, and one thing Aquinas does stress is in order for a human being to be a human being, both have to be present. Right. That's right. And, and the, the role for habituation is so significant when it comes to, to mastering our passions or maybe, maybe even more properly, um, cultivating our, our passions, educating them. I mean, the, the good news of the moral life is our passions are educable through the ministrations of reason, but over many, many acts in which we're striving to, um, habituate them to, to act in accord with, with our judgments. But, Mere argumentation um, only only penetrates so far, and being right. being right is is insufficient when it comes to um, right action and and educating others to to follow what in fact um, intellectually they can grasp as as a, a proper course of action. So I that's right, yeah. Uh, um, I, I wanted to ask you a little bit about um, the, the topic for your, your March 3rd lecture, which will be part of, of the Arate series. I, I have a series of, of lectures and other engagements called Arate, Renewing Culture Through Educational Excellence. So it's, it's our highest level engagement, and um, I'm so happy that you're going to be part of, of that particular series. And the the topic for your talk will be answering the same God question with theological integrity. Could you tell us a little bit about about that that talk? Sure, sure. I, and and I, I by the way, I'm honored to to, to be uh, a speaker in that series. I uh, looked at some of the names that preceded me, uh, some of my predecessors, and it's quite uh, quite an honor to be uh, in that group. Uh, let me say a few things about about the talk. So, about six years ago, there was a controversy at Wheaton College in uh, Illinois. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was a professor there, a political science professor, who said on her Facebook page that uh, that she says, "I agree with Pope Francis that Muslims and Christians worship the same God." And this caused a controversy because, according to the statement of faith that all faculty members at Wheaton must sign. 
one must affirm the doctrine of the Trinity, and obviously Muslims do not accept the doctrine of the Trinity. Mm-hmm. I wrote a, an op-ed piece uh, defending this professor, even though I, I suspect on political issues, she and I are, are, are wide apart on, uh, you know, uh, on certain political questions. She is far more liberal mm-hmm. than I am. But on this issue, one of the so I wrote this op-ed piece for the online magazine, The Catholic Thing, where I, where I made the argument that in the Catholic tradition, uh, the reason why we hold this view is not because we don't believe that people that deny the Trinity are wrong. It's because we believe that there is something about the divine nature that we could know as human beings and get correct, namely mm-hmm. that there is a... Uh, uncaused, uh, eternal, simple, infinite being that has underived existence. That means that he's always existed, and that, mm-hmm. of course, is God. Mm-hmm. And, and do, in fact, Muslims and Jews uh, believe in such a being? Of course they do, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and so what I, what I want to do in this lecture, what I'm going to do in this lecture, is to then appeal to Aquin- Thomas Aquinas's distinction between the preambles of faith mm-hmm. and the articles of faith. So Aquinas argues that there are certain things that we can know about God through our natural reason, mm-hmm. or certain things that we can know about God, even if we don't have an argument, we just kind of know, mm-hmm. like, uh, you know, sort of, you know, let's say you're taking an Uber ride and you're, uh, your driver, you, you get into a theological discussion and you ask your driver, do you believe in God? And he says, yeah, sure I do. I grew up Catholic or I grew up Presbyterian. And you ask him, well, what's your argument? And he says, I don't have an argument. I just think it's obvious that God exists. Yeah. Aquinas says that that's perfectly reasonable. Yeah, <laughs> that, right. That, mm. and, and, that, and that that person could very well, you know, that person, if, if you sort of quiz them, they would have a view of God that corresponds to, uh, you know, pr- not in the sort of technical philosophical sense that I uh, explained it, but it's sort of in a way that's consistent with that. Right. And uh, now that differs from what Aquinas called the articles of faith. Those are those things that we could only know through God revealing them through Holy Scripture and tradition. So the doctrine of the Trinity, or that Christ died for our sins. Right. So we can know, for example, that Jesus of Nazareth lived and died, and we can have arguments for why he rose from the dead, but we can't get from sheer uh, examination of history uh, whether he, in fact, died for our sins. That's something we can only know if God specially, specially reveals that to us. Right. And so what I want to do in this lecture is to show how we can say, yes, Muslims, Christians, and Jews all worship the same God, but that doesn't mean they share the same faith. Right. And so that's, what I, that's the theological integrity part, because I think a lot of Catholics, especially more traditional Catholics, are nervous when, let's say, uh, somebody says, oh, Muslims, Christians, and Jews worship the same God, and they, they think, oh, uh, this person is a kind of theological liberal who believes in a kind of universal ecumenism and wants to dilute the faith. Right. And what I want to argue is that, no, in fact, this is part of something that's been part of the Catholic tradition from the very start. Yeah, you know, it's, it, you know, Nostra Aetate and um, a number of other documents of Vatican II Make the point that those of the Abrahamic yeah. religions worship the same God. So, you know, th- those who might find that problematical from a Catholic point of view, um, 
um, need to, to be a little bit more familiar with with the magisterium, which which makes that point. Um, but I, I think you're right that fear is born from a a kind of of collision of or elision of the the distinctions that that you've made between you know the, the God revealed through faith um, and and the God that we can grasp by means of of reason, seeing that there is an uncaused cause, a, a first mover of everything in the universe and and a most perfect being and and other. Other ways in which Aquinas lays out we can come at God. That's that is open to um, well anyone actually of of um, whatever faith. But in a particular way, there's there is this Abrahamic root that that we share in common um, with those um, those other religions. So I I, th- I think it's very valuable to lay this out, and um, I think it's going to be quite fruitful for our students and, and guests to. Uh, Wrestle with it, that argument. Yeah, you know, the, the model for this is um, uh, something actually never occurred to me until I began writing about this uh, a couple of years ago, is the on Mars Hill, where St. Paul is, uh, you know, debating with the Greek and Roman philosophers. Yeah. And he says, I'll, you know, I walked throughout your city in Athens and... I came across the temple to the unknown God. I'll tell you who that unknown God is. And he goes on to say, even your poets say uh, there is this being in which we exist and have and move and have our own being. And so there he's sort of, he's saying, look, there's this creator, this self-existent creator of all that is. And that's the God that I'm going to present to you. But he's also revealed himself in the person of Jesus of Nazareth who died and rose again. And so, there is this, in the very presentation of Mars Hill, of, of Paul saying, I'll tell you about this God, and then I'll tell you how he specially revealed himself. Yeah. So, if, and I think there's, there's, there you have it sort of in a nutshell. Yeah, you have the preamble, and then, and then you have the full revelation. And, and that's right. that, 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 that's a, a beautiful, um, image for us to have in mind. We're actually going to have to, to, to uh, step out of the show, I'm getting all <laughs> kinds of signals from from Dave, okay. our host, but um, it's it's gone extremely quickly. So, read um, our, our listeners would be very interested. Never doubt Thomas, the Catholic Aquinas, as evangelical and Protestant, and there are many other books by Dr. Francis Beckwith that I would encourage you to pick up and read. You will be benefited tremendously. Thanks for being on the show, Dr. Beckwith. Thanks for having me. All right, thanks to you both. Very interesting conversation. I enjoyed every every moment of it. Uh, my 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 Twitter handle, by the way, is is the Thomas. All right. Okay. In fact, <laughs> if if, I, if uh, Dr. Beckwith tried to get that one and he wasn't able to, my it's my fault. But uh, great great conversation. Thank you very much, uh, Dr. Francis Beckwith, Professor of Philosophy and and Church State Studies at Baylor University, and also Dr. Sanford. Thank you for for being here. We'll look forward to seeing you in about four weeks uh, for our February fourth Monday of the. Uh, of the month uh, for the U- University of Dallas segment here on the Good News Show.